So I'm going to go straight into the sermon. I'm going to do the scripture reading a little bit uh, into the sermon, uh, just, just so you know. So uh, when I was in college, I was very uh, contemplative. I, I journaled a lot. I still have all my old journals going back to the sixth grade. They're still stacked up on, on one of my bookshelves. Uh, and I also wrote poems. I actually wrote poems about my relationship with God, uh, which kind of makes sense. You know, when you're in college and you're younger, you're more emotional. You're, you're more full of wonder. You're more easily moved. Your heart is you know, more likely to flutter, uh, which totally was the case for me, uh, whether it was you know, seeking after God or seeking after the affections of a woman. But anyway, you know, I wrote and published a poem online when I turned 20 years old. This was during my junior year of college, back in uh, December of 1998, a a long time ago. The name of the poem was called 20. I turned 20, right? And it was about how I desired God, how I wanted to live for God over my next 20 years. It was also about God uh, giving God thanks for all he had done in my first 20 years of existence. And then I actually wrote down the names of like every person I had known throughout life. For real, like my close friends, my family, my youth group friends, all the way down to like elementary school friends and teachers. Okay, even the first girl I had a crush on, Annie Lee in the first grade. And this poem was actually quite popular, if I can say so. People wrote me emails. Uh, One friend told me she was moved to tears, how beautiful it was. And it was. The sad thing is, all that time I worked for the computer. Uh, I worked for the computer lab in college, and I was a bad employee. I was often late, uh, even skipping shifts. So I got fired, and that poem was on a special account as a result of working for the lab. So when I got fired. I lost the account, and I lost the poem. It is like vanished. It's it's gone forever. I don't have it. I don't remember what I wrote. I don't remember all the people. It's like one of my deepest regrets. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God for the contents of that poem. Uh, But, you know, the older I get, uh, I don't write poems anymore. I write poems for my wife occasionally, but that's about it. Uh, There was a poem I wrote called 20. Uh, There was no poem called 40. Okay, I don't even enjoy reading poems anymore. And I wonder how many of us actually enjoy poetry. I feel like it's on the decline because, you know, we live in such an instant society. And reading and savoring poems is a a very slow thing. Uh, But poems are powerful. Uh, We know that, right? We know that a lot of our favorite classic hymns are really poems. Uh, For example, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Found, sound. Uh, was blind, but now I see. I see in me. It perfectly rhymes. Uh, The purpose of my long-windedness is to introduce the poem in our passage today. Uh, The first two-thirds of our passage is actually a poem that the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus. See, Paul is so moved by who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus will do, that he just breaks out into song and verse. Paul is a poet, and he knows it. So the purpose of this poem is really twofold. One is, we've talked about this last week, he's attacking heresies that were lurking. Uh, Today we're continuing our series titled Colossians, Be the Center. If you remember from last week, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Coloss, a people he'd actually never met. 
but he had heard from his faithful disciple Epaphras, who had planted that church. Uh, Paul had heard that there were deceptions that people were believing, people were becoming vulnerable to. So, of course, Paul wants to take straight aim at those heresies through this letter. But the grander purpose of this letter and this poem is to exalt Jesus. Paul's intention is to pen a poem that will seek to capture the magnificence, the beauty, the power of Jesus. This poem is truly an ode to Jesus. So let's read it. You can follow along on your screen. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 is the poem, and then we'll read up to verse 23. Hear now God's word. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. This passage and poem reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us that Jesus is the end-all, be-all. Jesus is the end. He is not the means. Jesus is all in all, not just the part. Jesus is the peanut butter and the jelly and the bread of life. He's the whole sandwich. But unfortunately, the church and people outside the church, they you know, often manipulate Jesus for their own ends. Uh, you see this all the time, right? We see people who are not Christians who then quote Jesus and then use those quotes to further whatever argument they're making, which doesn't really make sense. We know Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the way and the truth and the life, the only way to the Father, the only way to heaven. If you don't believe that's true, then you actually don't believe that Jesus is sane. Uh, what kind of person would make those kind of false claims? So then why would you subscribe to anything that Jesus is saying? Uh, They also present an unbalanced view of Jesus. Uh, People like to talk about how Jesus' main message is love. And that is a main message, don't get me wrong. But they often mischaracterize Jesus' love as if he was never tough on anybody. And if you really read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that Jesus talked about many other things. Jesus talked a lot about money because he knows how money affects our hearts. Jesus talked a lot about hell. He talked a lot about judgment and warning against judgment. But that part is oftentimes conveniently left out uh, when people who are not Christians talk about Jesus. And this is not just outside the church. We inside the church do the same thing. We either have an incomplete view of Jesus or we utilize him for 
our own means. Uh, Greg Morris, he wrote about certain ways we misuse and manipulate Jesus. And I want to present them to you. Uh, I've also added uh, a couple of my own. And as we go through them, I want you to think, do you do this? Do you misuse Jesus in these ways? Uh, And if you do, that means Jesus has become a means, not the end. When we know that Jesus should be much more than that. Okay, there's six of them. Let's go through them. Number one is life coach Jesus. Here's where we believe that Jesus is about me reaching my full potential. Jesus is a means for me to accomplish my goals and dreams. Jesus leads me from good to great. Jesus will help me get my best life now. Jesus comes alongside me and simply says, you can do it. That's life coach Jesus. And this, as you might be able to tell, is very prevalent in prosperity gospel churches, uh, certain authors as well. Uh, even though, you know, we say we reject the prosperity gospel, I, I think, you know, most of us would say that. Uh, there are times we may actually believe parts of it. Okay, we act like Jesus is a life coach. That's number one. Number two is wise man Jesus. This is where we use Jesus to find quotes, you know, like good maxims for life. This is where we use Jesus to generate memes. Uh, Jesus said this, right? Isn't that so wise? Isn't he such a wise teacher? As if Jesus' greatest accomplishment is being as quotable as, as Buddha or Socrates. Uh, number three is housekeeper Jesus. This is especially when we don't feel convicted about sin in our lives. We just feel a little sorry. We just feel a little bit of remorse. We're not so bad. We just need a little cleaning up. So Jesus, come follow me with a mop and bucket and clean up my mess. Moore says we treat Jesus as if he died to pay the cleaning fee. So Jesus, just, you know, just clean it up so that I can move on. Number four is Kumbaya, Jesus. You know, Jesus hears my problems and is there to just make me feel better. He's like, there, there, right? Jesus is the bearer of good vibes. Jesus tells me to cheer up, sport. This is the coddling Jesus, the one who would never hurt your feelings, the one who would never challenge you in case you get offended. And therefore, Jesus is okay with us staying the way we are. You know, it's all good, man. That's a shout out to Better Call Saul, the best, best show on TV. Anyway, number five is humanitarian Jesus. This is when we believe that Jesus' main mission was to simply improve human relations. Jesus came primarily to right the wrongs that people have inflicted against each other. So what we do is we take a cause that we're passionate about and insert some of Jesus' words and actions to make our case. And then we act like and we state that Jesus came to address that one injustice. Okay, one more. And this is the one I want to focus on. This one is a doozy. Number six is political platform Jesus. We use Jesus to justify our political views. We use Jesus to vilify the other political party. You know, as a pastor for a long time, I have had people in church, you know, insist to me that Jesus is a liberal. I've had people in church insist to me that Jesus is a conservative. And what we're doing with, you know, really all six of these Jesuses is we take snippets of Jesus' words and actions to fortify our case while leaving out a lot of other things that Jesus said. Uh, Jesus also said, love your enemies, right? I don't see people fitting that into their staunch political views. And I know I've been, you know, I've talked a lot about politics recently, but here's why this is so important. In uh, 1801, a British pastor named Andrew Fuller. He was perplexed and he wrote a book called The Backslider. 
It was about how people who are once passionate, devoted to God, on fire for God, they lost that passion. He was trying to figure out why. And there are various reasons, but he realized one main culprit, he said, is taking an eager and deep interest in political disputes. Now, Fuller isn't saying, and I'm not saying, that politics don't matter. They matter. God has ordained government. God wants good government. God wants good leaders. God wants God-fearing people to enact good and beneficial laws for everybody. But let's be honest, it's just so easy for many of us to become consumed by politics. And Fuller saw in politics a distinctive power over the human imagination that uniquely competed for ultimate supremacy within the soul. And isn't that true? How many of you have been going down rabbit holes online, on social media, on YouTube, on podcasts, and you just become obsessed? And I truly want us to consider what drives your world view. Is it your political views? Or is it the totality of scripture? The totality of God's counsel? The totality of Jesus? And a big danger is some of us believe those two are the same. Many Christians say the Bible is the number one guide to life, but they've actually subsumed the Bible within their political views. And I'm saying all this to you as a recovering political junkie. I used to be that guy. You know, read all the opinion columns, post all my views, have arguments with people. But then I realized I was allowing my politics to speak for what I believed was God's counsel. And God's counsel is so much more complex, so much more comprehensive. So I'm reminding us, especially as we get to the meat of the 2020 election, uh, don't be consumed. Care, be informed, be active, talk to people, but don't be consumed. Love your neighbors, including those who disagree with you. Read the Bible more than you read political updates. Otherwise, we can fall into the trap of utilizing Jesus for our own ends. All six of these I mentioned, life coach Jesus, wise man Jesus, housekeeper Jesus, kumbaya Jesus, humanitarian Jesus, political platform Jesus, none of them even come close to doing justice to who Jesus really is. Jesus is worthy of so much more than us putting him in a box, than us using him for our own means, our own gain. See, this is why we need this poem. That's why Paul wrote this poem. So the church in Colossus, and also you and me, do not ever forget, or we don't ever downplay who Jesus is. So I pray as we explore this poem, it will be a, a fresh reminder of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and why he is worthy of being the center. Why Jesus is worthy of all the glory and the honor we can possibly give him, like we just sang. Let's break down the poem. The first three verses is the first stanza. Verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This poem starts off with a bang. These are strong assertions that Paul is making here. And, you know, we know them. We grew up in church. We've heard them. But they weren't actually crystal clear at the time. See, Paul is emphasizing in one swift phrase that Jesus is God himself. One rampant heresy at that time was that Jesus is not God. Jesus is merely an emanation of God the Father. He was created by God the Father. Therefore, Jesus is not worthy to be worshipped the same as God the Father. He's not equally God. 
But see, Paul shoots down the heresy immediately. He says Jesus is the image, the one image of the invisible God. And then he says he's the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? That means Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. This word firstborn has tripped up many people. Uh, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe Jesus is equally, you know, equal of God the Father. They believe that Jesus was born of God the Father. And they use this verse. Right? If maybe you've ever, if you ever have them knock on your door or you've ever talked to them, they use this verse to make their case. They say, look, see this verse. It says Jesus was the firstborn. Uh, that argument doesn't really make sense when you read the rest of the poem. This, this is why you have to read it in context. But the word firstborn does not actually mean firstly born. Okay, it actually means here top in rank or like we just saying preeminent. Right? For example, in Psalms, uh, Solomon is referred to as David's firstborn son. Was Solomon David's first son? No. But Solomon became the chief heir of David. That's what firstborn means. It means Jesus rules over creation. He was very active in creation. He was not one who was created. The point is, Jesus did not burst on the scene when he was born in the year 1 AD in Bethlehem. The same Jesus who walked the earth and died on the cross for us is the same Jesus who created the universe. And we learn more about Jesus and his role in creation when we look at verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I know your first thought. That's a lot of prepositions. It seems confusing. Um, let's break it down. In him, through him, for him. In him, all things were created. That means Jesus is the planner. Jesus worked with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to plan creation. It was his idea. Through him, Jesus produced it. Jesus created all of creation. There's nothing in all of creation that was not created by Jesus. And then for him, that's a reference to the purpose. What is the purpose of all creation? It's the glory of Jesus. It's the purpose of making Jesus known. What that means is nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Nothing. Everything exists to give glory to Jesus. The mountaintops, the stars, the smallest particle, the largest desert, the school subject you found the most fascinating, the school subject you found the most boring, ranging from the most beautiful human being all the way to the cockroach. Okay, yes, even the cockroach, even the rat, even the bed bugs, they were all created to give glory to Jesus. There's even an extra level. You might be able to believe the cockroach speaks to God's creativity or sense of humor, or uh, I don't know, maybe the cockroach is part of some ecological scheme, I don't know. But what about evil? Right? What about the most evil person, whoever you think that is, the most evil person that's ever existed? What about that person right now, perhaps in politics, that you absolutely loathe? Is God using that person, what he or she has done, to bring glory to Jesus? There's an answer in our verse. If you look at verse 16, Paul says, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's interesting, right? That's the only specific ideas we see in this verse. 
Paul could have said, you know, invisible and invisible, right? All things created. And then he could have said, like, the birds and the flowers and the ocean or, or you and me that bring glory to God. Instead, we have these four nouns. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. This is referring to supernatural powers. Some of you know Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against what? The rulers, the authorities, the powers of this present darkness. It's the same language. So this is actually about angels, demons, the devil. This verse even refers to the devil working through people, right? people who are under the influence of the devil. Here's the point. Jesus takes everything, including the schemes of Satan and all the evil in this world, including evil people, and he utilizes it for his glory. The best example, of course, is Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. The Bible explicitly talks about, it says Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus so that prophecies would be fulfilled. Now we know it was also because Judas was greedy, he was depraved, but see God's sovereignty was behind it all. God foresaw all that would happen to Jesus as a result of Judas' betrayal and he allowed it to happen. He allowed Jesus to be tempted by the devil. He allowed Jesus to be betrayed. Right? Think about that. One of his 12 disciples who had spent you know, three years right, close, very close with the pain of being betrayed, which led, of course, to Jesus being punished in the most vile way possible on that old wooden cross. But we know that out of that came the greatest victory, Jesus actually defeating death on the cross. So God is at work today. Even in the midst of all the terrible things and all the evil that is happening, God is still in control. We don't know all the particulars. When we get to heaven, we'll be able to see God's master plan. Can we just admit as finite human beings, we may not be able to see the whole picture. And we're like, God, how can that happen? I don't know. You don't know. God knows. And we know the main purpose. It's to make Jesus known. It's for Jesus to be exalted. This also encourages us in our own personal suffering. You know, God does allow suffering to take place in our individual lives. It does not surprise God. It is part of God's foreknowledge. And again, in the midst of suffering, we're like, why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? And <laughs> you probably know God doesn't usually give a clear answer. He doesn't give us all the particulars. And I think one reason is we wouldn't believe it anyway. We'd be like, what, God? Like, that's your plan? But God has a plan. And God is on the move. He is he's working it all out. Later in this chapter, Paul talks about how he rejoices in suffering because he knows his suffering. You know, he was in prison partly because he had preached the gospel to Gentiles. Right? Gentiles were, you know, not supposed to be part of the covenant community, not supposed to be, you know, have access to God's promise. Right? So the Jews didn't like that. That's why he was thrown into prison. But he rejoices right? because he knows his suffering is magnifying the greatness of God. So friends, know that when you suffer, God is working through your suffering to transform you into someone who gives more praise to God. And we know pain changes us. Right? Oftentimes suffering is the means through which we become closer to God and more dependent on God. So suffering is also a way that people see the glory of God because they know you're suffering and yet you're trusting, you're persevering, right? And hopefully you're even joyful even as 
life is hard, just like Paul was. And that's a powerful witness. But we really comprehend that idea uh, when we just remember this. It's not about us. It never has been. We are not our own. We were created in Jesus. He planned it. We were created through Jesus. He created us. He accomplished it. And we were created for Jesus. We were created to worship Jesus. We were created to tell of Jesus. We were created to display the glory of Jesus in all that we do. Verse 17 says, He is before all things. Again, preeminence. And in Him, all things hold together. All things hold together. All things? Jesus is holding the whole world together. All the atoms, all the molecules are held together by Jesus. The solar system held by Jesus. The power of the sun operated by Jesus. The cosmological constant, that's Jesus. Google it if you don't know. And yes, you and me, our next breath depends upon Jesus. Whether we rise out of bed the next morning depends upon Jesus. You are not as independent as you think. Whatever you do, however you live, that depends upon Jesus. When God created you, he called dibs on you. He said, you're mine. You belong to me. And I want to ask us today, how does that make us feel? Is that good news to you? How do you feel that you exist to exalt Jesus? That you were created to exalt, enjoy, glorify God forever? Is that your primary goal in life? To give glory and honor to Jesus through all that you do, your words, your actions, your goals, your money, your time, your relationships. If Jesus is truly the firstborn over all creation, if Jesus is truly before all things, then Jesus deserves first place in everything. Warren Risby, he puts it this way. He says, to give Jesus prominence instead of preeminence is to dethrone him. He is, it's not just enough for Jesus to be a priority. He is to be the priority. He is not just one God among other gods. He is the image of the true invisible God. And if he is not the Lord over every inch of our lives, we are dethroning him. We are making him out to be much less than he actually is. Jesus is indeed worthy of all our hearts and all our lives. And the same is for our church. New Mercy Palace Church. Verse 18 says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Our church has seven core values. The first one is, we follow Jesus. Our church exists to follow Jesus, to exalt Jesus. Um, that's why we're trying to put together the best possible worship service, even in the midst of this pandemic. By the way, if you've really been blessed through all this streaming, you know, I would just encourage you, let the volunteers know. Uh, some of you, you thank the pastors, and we appreciate it. Uh, but our worship team members, our production members, they're the true superstars. All right, so let them know you appreciate them. Right? So thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Joe. And that's why we have all these awesome volunteers right, who seek to exalt Jesus by serving our children, uh, welcoming people, preparing food, organizing activities. That's why we seek to be a loving community. Not just so we can say, hey, we're so friendly, we're so nice. But that through the community, each of us may know Jesus more and therefore worship Jesus as he ought to be worshipped. We're not a social club. We're not an activist organization. We are a church that follows Jesus and desires to hold Jesus up for all to see, for all to come and worship and bow down before him. You know, earlier I kind of joked, you know, about how when I was younger, 
uh, I was more wide-eyed, right? I was more of a hopeless romantic, uh, which is why I wrote poetry. But I think there's something to that in terms of our faith. So I want to speak especially to those of you who are older. Now, some of you are like, where's the dividing line? Okay, here's the dividing line. If you had a beeper in high school or college, you're old. If you owned a pair of Reebok pumps, you're old. If you had either an original Nintendo Entertainment System or a Super Nintendo, you're old. Okay, those are the rules. So when we were younger, you know, we realized we don't know much. And that made us more ripe to be impacted, to become, you know, we were sponges when we were younger. We just wanted to, like, learn as much as we can. And that's one reason why, you know, children's ministry is so important. Shout out to Pastor Bobe, all our Mercy Kids teachers. Um, That's why uh, youth ministry really matters. Thank you, Joan, for investing in that ministry. But the older we get, uh, we become more jaded. I think, you know, we also become more deceived, precisely because we're smarter and we're more independent and therefore more proud. And I believe that's a reason why we lose our first love. Some of you, you were passionate about Jesus. You were in love with Jesus. You were captivated by the beauty and the grace of Jesus. But, you know, as we get older, um, yeah, other priorities come along. But we also lose a sense of awe. We lose a sense of wonder. We lose that childlike passion. See, that's why we need this poem, right? We need to see once again who Jesus is. And we also need to see once again what Jesus has done for us. In verse 21, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So again, those of us who have been Christians for a long time, do you remember that? Did you forget that? We need to remember where we came from. We were alienated. Alienated, like completely away from God. We were enemies of God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were destined for hell and eternity without God. And that would have been completely just because we are guilty. We did not deserve mercy. But then verse 22, but now, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, if you don't think you need saving, if you think your soul is fine without Jesus, then verse 22 isn't amazing news. It's like, oh, that's cool. Think of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, right? There were many Gentiles at the church in Colossus who read this letter. And these are people, again, they were considered outside the promise of God, outside the covenant community of God, people who were considered hopeless, like literally no hope. They're as dead as you can be. Now, that's not completely true. If you read the Old Testament, God makes promises to the Gentiles, but that was a widely held belief. So if you're a Gentile, you have no chance to know God. You have no shot for redemption and forgiveness. And then they read verse 21 and 22, that this Jesus, the creator of the universe, became flesh and died for them. People who were enemies of God. Imagine the elation Imagine the sheer joy, the excitement coursing through the veins of the Gentiles as they pondered this breaking news known as the gospel. See, many of us, we've had that elation, uh, just like the Gentiles at that time. But again, the older we get, we start to take it all for granted. We treat the gospel like old, stale news. You know, we'd rather chase after other breaking news. We'd rather chase after other novelties. And then we lose 
our first love for Jesus. We pride ourselves, the older we get, on not being emotional. We're on an even keel. We're not as dumb and impulsive as we were when we were younger. But then we go too far. We no longer actually take the Bible at face value. You know, we rationalize around it. We don't actually fully believe what God's word says. Because if we did, and if we savored it, those words would indeed move our hearts. They would give light to our eyes. They would give joy to our souls. So when we ponder the teachings in this passage, the same Jesus who is the Lord of all creation is the same Jesus who is the Savior of my soul. So deep, so foul was my sin before God that Jesus' death was the only way. I don't need a life coach Jesus or a housekeeper Jesus or a wise man Jesus. I need so much more. I need the Savior, Jesus. And that's when we respond. It's easy to respond at that point and say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you are my first love. Jesus, you're the center of my life. Jesus, take your place on the throne. That's where you belong. You see, throughout the book of Colossians, we're consistently told, stand firm. Don't move. Stay where you are. Verse 23 says, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Like, where are you going? Why are you running after that? Stay put. Don't move. Keep it simple. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all that we need. See, it's when we complicate things. And then we begin to, you know, reduce Jesus to a means, not the end. That's when our vision gets murky. That's when our love uh, loses passion. That's when our joy gets stolen. So if you've been running away, come on back. Okay, Jesus is here. He created you for himself. And then when you turned your back on him, he died for you. So that again, you could be his. And that's where we all belong with Jesus. New Mercy Palaces Church, let's be a church that loves Jesus. Let's be a church that always talks about Jesus, worships Jesus, keeps in front and center because Jesus is worthy. He's Lord over all creation and Lord, Lord over our salvation. All glory be to him. Let's pray.